Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Tyler Edgerly, Gene Combs, Mark Phillips, Net Jean, and Michael Reich, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my collected work, and conversations with luminaries like Timothy Leary, Terence McKenna, and participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. Today is not a regular episode so much as a lovely bonus in our feed, an event I did for the release of Cyber Salon's new book of extremely short stories called 22 Ideas About the Future. I mean, as you know, I've been talking a lot recently about getting back to theater and graphic novels and yes, fiction. Fiction has always been a guilty pleasure for me with so many urgent things going on in the real world. How dare I indulge in reading, much less writing fiction? Don't I have a responsibility to understand and explain the realities of economic inequality, racial injustice, and climate change before engaging in fantasies of robots, space, or artificial intelligence? Perhaps. But after writing a couple of dozen nonfiction books and hundreds of articles, I'm not so sure that fact-based rhetoric is the best way to reach people or even to inform them. I mean, yes, I've gathered plenty of evidence for people who've already agreed with me to make their cases to others. And I know many of my readers have nodded along with what I've written, feeling confirmed and vindicated by seeing their opinions expressed for them in writing, maybe in a manner more fully formed than they've been able to articulate themselves. And it's an honor and a privilege to put words to our shared sensibilities. And still, I'm I'm feeling like no matter how well I argue, I am 
painfully limited in my ability to reach through to people who don't already see the world as I do. My facts, my, my insights, they don't penetrate closed minds. It's as if my premises just bounce off people's skulls and scatter on the ground unconsidered. If only I could get people to create a, a sliver of an opening to suppose something new or different, even just for a moment, if they would only consider the utterly implausible, even just for kicks, I know I could take care of the rest. And that's the, the beauty, the opportunity of collections like the one we're going to be talking about today. It's speculative fiction that does something very special to otherwise closed minds. It creates space for the novel, right? Even that word, novels, right? The novel. Just allowing oneself to pretend that something could be true is more than enough. We can't imagine something without at least entertaining that possibility. Speculative fiction is is an invitation to speculate on fictional scenarios. And in the process, we reveal truths we may have hidden from ourselves. So while reality TV is busy generating dangerous fictions and creating closed-minded racist conspiracy theories in the process, speculative fiction exposes people to necessary truths they may never truly encounter otherwise. You can't read about the world after climate catastrophe without at least accepting the possibility of climate change to begin with, as well as a way out. If you suspend your disbelief in thinking machines for long enough to follow the story of a vengeful robot, you're ready to consider the impact of autonomous vehicles on the human environment. If you allow yourself to imagine a future without debt or credit, workers or bosses, hoarding or poverty, you free yourself to consider the inequalities embedded in our economic system right now. But beyond the specific subjects that speculative fiction can introduce to our stubbornly rigid minds. The process of speculation itself retrains the brain like a form of exercise. It stretches our imaginative capacity, making our thinking more porous and flexible and able to tolerate the surprising or absurd, where reality addicts of all stripes can only envision a great awakening, apocalyptic comeuppance, or an endless cycle of repression, those who embrace fiction have the freedom to, to, to reject the inevitability of human suffering and envision alternative pathways, ways out, ways through, or just ways. What if speculative fiction in particular invites us to consider awe-inspiring new landscapes, outer space, inner space, living machines, alternative dimensions, magic sigils, and shared consciousness. And that experience of awe, it acts positively on the body and mind. Psychologists studying the phenomenon have found that even a brief 
moment of awe can help people act with an increased sense of meaning and purpose, turning our attention away from the self and toward collective self-interest. Awe even helps regulate our body's immune response, reduces inflammation as if engendering a less defensive, aggravated response to the unknown. After a few moments of awe, people behave with greater altruism, cooperation, and self-sacrifice. It makes people feel like part of something larger than themselves. Unlike traditional fiction, speculative fiction, it owes nothing to the standard Aristotelian arc that's characterized drama and story for the past two millennia. We're used to following the male hero up the inclined plane of tension into danger, and he eventually reaches a crisis that requires reversal and recognition. The poison is a weapon. The talent is a flaw. The goal is the problem. Then climax, catharsis, and sleep. And this same shape of striving toward a goal up the hill through adversity to the golden ring at the end of the journey, it's also characterized everything from Christianity and capitalism to Marxism and activism. We make change through ends, justifies the means, can't pains because it's the only story architecture we know. No pain, no gain. But the best of speculative fiction, it frees us, not only from our personal reality tunnels, but from the tired narrative conventions that limit our approaches to innovation and collaboration, consensus and liberation. In this sense, speculative fiction is inherently revolutionary, or better, evolutionary in its purpose. Not only can things be different, but the way in which that shift happens must also be up for discussion. Every story is a theory of change, whether or not it rises to that occasion. I mean, try to imagine technological innovation without the specter of a business plan or exponential growth curve. What is virtual reality or even a metaverse when it's not obligated to breathe new life into a dying ticker symbol? Yes, Facebook, I'm talking about you. Where else but smart sci-fi and cli-fi can we speculate on the unacknowledged externalities of these business practices and the unforeseen impacts of the technologies themselves? Imagine what technological development might look like if it weren't already sitting on top of the operating system we call corporate capitalism. Dare we? So no, I will no longer apologize for my love of fiction and speculative and yes, and yes, science fiction, climate fiction, cyberpunk and solar punk. In a world where nearly every experience makes us feel like we're being quantized for the benefit of an observing algorithm, we need ways of slipping between the prescribed values to the bizarre in-between spaces where life breeds and human thought mutates. Just because it's fun doesn't mean it's wrong. This is the work. This is the play. And so with that in mind, here's an event organized around the book of short, short, short stories, 22 Ideas About the Future, for which I wrote the introduction. It's a panel with the people who made the book, Stephen Oram, 
Eva Pasco and Benjamin Greenaway. It was on Thursday, the 29th of September at Newspeak House in London. So please enjoy. Hello, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for coming to the launch of our amazing new book, 22 Ideas About the Future. Very excited to to be here and see people in flesh. That's a nice break from our post-COVID virtual reality. But we're not afraid of virtuality, so we have some virtual show for you for later. But we're going to kick off with an introduction to Douglas, who uh, has supported our project and wrote the introduction to it. And it nicely coincided with his own book coming out. So uh, we hope to, to get a little bit uh, of conversation today about uh, what you thought about our project. And you, we want to hear from you about your book. So welcome. Very excited to see you. And if I can hand over to Stephen, who was the editor on the book and did with Ben the grant of the hard work, as we know, Putting books together is pretty dumb. It's thrilling, but it's exhausting and irritating in the same way. <laughs> Douglas, hello. Um, loved hey. your book, by the way. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Absolutely fantastic. Um, lots of food for thought in there. Um, I've got sort of just a few, a few questions. I'll start off with one, which is just that's really... That, that's, yes, sorry, yes. You're, hold it up again. <laughs> hold it up again, Douglas. <laughs> Survival of the Richest. It's absolutely Escape brilliant. fantasies of the tech billionaires. Yeah. It's kind of the opposite of your book, which is great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so just to sort of uh, get into just sort of asking you a question, really just to sort of get, get the thing rolling. And obviously you'll take it wherever, wherever you want, wherever you want to take it. But um, <laughs> so in the, in the digital civilization that we found ourselves in, uh, we're observed by algorithms when we sleep, ovulate, date, exercise, um, and our lives have been digitized um, to really sort of chew humanity and spit out, uh, spit us out as zeros and, and ones uh, for the benefit of fattening big tech, maybe. Um, do you think fiction is a way forward in which we can sort of reclaim humanity? Uh, certainly. I mean, the the zeros and ones of digital culture are really consonant with the utilitarian values of capitalism, right? Which will look at at human beings as, you know, even since since the late Middle Ages, as cogs in the machine, and uh, it requires human beings and the humanities and the arts or or the spiritual, which are kind of the same thing to me, uh, but it requires the arts to to assert the value of the stuff that can't be quantized, of the stuff that's between you know between each quantum level, between the one and the zero. You know, it's uh, Peter Thiel, one of my billionaires. You know, he's all about going from zero to one. Well, what about everything between zero to one, where the human beings, you know, actually live? You know, what about the 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 space between the ticks of the clock, where human reality happens, which maybe remains uh, unmeasured? You know, art. Art is fantastic for for acknowledging and recording and and centering or even you know 
privileging the the non-numeric, you know, the, the stuff that can't be digitized or quantified. You know, so we have Francis Bacon to quantify every piece of nature he can, and the artists to do the other 99.9% of of living experience. So so absolutely. The trick is, I think I was just thinking about this as we were starting, is what kind of fiction? You know, what kind? There's the 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 guys in in my book, the the tech bro billionaires, are informed largely by science fiction. You know, their their end of the world apocalypse scenarios are from you know Walking Dead or or uh, other other. I wouldn't know if I call that speculative fiction, but fiction uh, of a sort. And they're they're. Uh, uh, solutions. Their their kind of techno solutionist vibe also comes from from fiction, and even uh, I, I feel like most of the people I've spoken to look at the future like Ready Player One, where they're going to build a metaverse for people to have fun in, while we live in trailer homes that are stacked a mile high and the and you know horrible conditions. Uh, so. What's that? But but the kind of the the an oversimplified view, or using fiction to land on a very singular and certain and certain future. But the um, art fiction, I think, as opposed to pure entertainment fiction, art fiction is not about answering questions and giving entertainment and and finding pat solutions, but asking questions and opening things, right? You read one of the stories, any of the, any, even the three page story in this book, and you're left asking questions. You're, you're, you've been activated, right? The story is the beginning of a thought process that keeps moving. Whereas the kind of fiction that, that, that my tech bros are looking for is the, the fiction that gives them an omega point, you know, yeah, <laughs> gives yeah, them absolutely. Yeah. that thing. And there's a kind of, so a little while ago, I was sort of pondering for myself, which uh, I'm doing something around, which is what what responsibility do sci-fi writers have? So if we are influencing people, influencing the future, giving people, like, what do we have a responsibility? And, and you're absolutely right. Those, uh, what I would describe as kind of cowboys and Indians in space, you know, the, the sort of, they're, they're not, they're not really speculating. They're just changing the, changing the situation in which a very traditional story is told the sort of the good the evil the and all that kind of thing where hopefully well i think so any of the books the stories in this are as you say they're kind of opening up a space for discussion as opposed to kind of giving you that full thing and and that end point as as as, as you yeah. as, as you were saying i mean and i think that's true of of, of fiction and non-fiction you know is is are we describing the figure or are we describing the ground? You know, there's a lot of uh, well-meaning, say, uh, climate nonfiction that focuses on the catastrophe, right? So they're focused on the figure. It's like uh, Kubrick would say, you know, uh, uh, at the end of um, Dr. Strangelove, when he shows the, all the atomic bombs blowing up, he's saying, oh, look, you as a civilization, you're really concerned with that bomb blowing up, but nobody's looking at what are the conditions on the ground that are leading to a world where these people have all this power and these people have these bombs? So how do you, uh, uh, how do you write fiction that, that, that isn't 
like you're saying, even speculative fiction that isn't just a translation of, you know, the Aristotelian heroic narrative that's used in every day. And now we're going to, okay, so now we'll just do it in space or now we'll do it in nano or now we'll do it with robots and it's like no you still haven't dealt with the guilt of having enslaved people for three four hundred years in your country and now you're going to talk about enslaved robots it's like no 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 you still not you're still not getting what you're missing you know so and in science fiction in particular because so many of us kind of nerdy tech bro white guys got interested in science fiction part of why we're interested in it is because it's like it's orderly and precise and clean surfaces and oversimplified and you don't have to really think about you know women and brown people and dirt and soil and confusion and relationships it's like oh a boy and his robot in space you know it's like yeah, pure absolutely. made for musk right and and in your in your book you talk about the mindset and and the the people which is kind of what you're what, what, what you're saying there and i wonder whether you feel that the speculative fiction maybe particularly this kind of thing the short ones is a you know do you, do you think this can challenge that kind of mindset not obviously like who knows how many tech billionaires are going to read this a few, all of them all of them all of them good we'll make sure um, but uh, but in terms they of the, read. how that's trickled through to everyone's mindset do you think this is this is a way of challenging that yeah i mean it's interesting i feel like these stories challenge that in form form function and content all at the same time right it's very um i don't even know what to say it's counter egotistical to write a story that's three or four pages long right i'm only going to ask for 15 minutes of your time how about 15 minutes to think like this right and then the stories for the most part don't do what people are demanding of their entertainment which is always a form of dance boy you know uh you know give me this thing and where's my and when do i climax when do i come so i can go to sleep you know crisis climax conclusion it's like okay it's really short so now it's just going to be a quickie but but almost none of these stories um do the uh, you know they don't give that that they don't we can speak frank they don't wank the reader right they don't they they bring the reader into a new ground they they you go into this atmosphere of this story you're you're forced to deal with all these questions and then there you go there you go and then oh my you know so it's almost like these stories it's like 22 it's like 22 levels of tantra right <laughs> it's like you keep going it's like oh now i'm in this place whoa whoa okay all right um now this is going to stay with me a while it's like no i'm not going to even read the next story now because now i want to go out and be in this in this place which is so which is so different again so the focus becomes on the ground rather than the figure becomes the experience of this world trying on this this taste this this how do I, uh, you know, you take in a story like this and you end up kind of embodying it. It, it, uh, it, it, it plays through you on a, uh, I mean, it's only fiction can on an emotional atmospheric level. And then you process what's happening a bit differently for a while. And that's, that's, you know, that's the fun of it. So it's really, uh, it's contrary to the apocalyptic, uh, uh narratives, uh, the the epic apocalyptic narratives that most of these um, you know tech bros yeah. 
are, uh, are adopting and uh, pushing on us. I'm really pleased to hear you describing it in that way, Douglas, actually, because one of the goals of the project had been to develop and deliver stories that leave the reader engaging in the problem. So the fact that it's asking, the fact that it's there about engagement, the fact that it's there to get people involved in that policy, again, it sounds like some of it's working, which is good. Oh, to it's hear. definitely working. And it's like, you know, I mean, Bertolt Brecht was dealing with this problem, right? He was upset that people are going into theater and they want these epic things and they want relief and then they're done. And he's like, no, 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 I want to, I, I want to shatter that. So he still created epic plays, but they would end by saying, and you're not getting an ending here. The gods, you know, he has one <laughs> where the gods come down, like a, a Duke's Ex Machina actually happens and the gods go, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. And then it's like, oh, shoot. So, but you don't have to take us through that whole thing you're you're accomplishing the same um the same thing by going okay how now this okay now that okay now this you know and it it, it does it does uh, it serves that kind of psychological function and i think both your both your introduction and ava's preface to it help help set that up for reading the book because Obviously, there will be people that will come to it thinking, I'm just going to read 22 sci-fi stories that I would normally expect. And and although it will take them further than that, I think both the introduction and the preface help help kind of move people into the right place. I'm encouraging everyone to read the introduction and the preface before kind of diving into their favorite author's story or whatever, just to get, get that sense of things. Just... Why, what, the other thing I'm wondering is, um, so in your in your uh, survival of the of the richest uh, mm. book, you kind of moved. Well, tell me if I'm right here. You've moved from sort of um, conveying ideas, although you are conveying ideas, but it's, it's very story based as a as a book. Um, I'm just wondering what what was behind that decision. It, you know, was that a deliberate decision? Is there a reason for that? Have I got that right? Yeah, it was, it was a deliberate decision. It was partly, I mean, you know, to my, my editor and my agent both said, um, your ideas are great. Your polemic is great, but your stories are what have the traction. Your stories are what actually bring people in, you know, and I've always been reluctant to use stories, uh, even real stories about my encounters, either because it feels like a cheap way of getting attention or because it, it, it's a kiss and tell on some interaction I've had, you know, so it's like, oh, no, I'll just, uh, uh, you know, not even fictionalize it, but I'll just talk about the idea that I got from that. And in this case, partly because, partly because some of these guys really are such fucking assholes, you know, that it's okay to name names once you've got a billion dollars you're suffering you know from a, a, and you're fair game you're a public figure you're a, it's a it's a different it's a different thing and even where i didn't name names and told stories it was also because uh, i see the function of my book is to make people laugh i want people to be able to laugh at richard dawkins staunch atheism at at peter thiel's visions of of a water world seasteading parks at the the tech bros who think they have a software stack for a blockchain that will irrigate the planet you know and and take care of our agricultural uh sexual psychological and spiritual needs um is is so um 
catastrophically hubristic that it needs um we 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 can't afford to be afraid of these people and their visions we have to see oh my god they are that silly right that they that there's one guy in in the book who was worried for me because i've written stories that are question the um uh uh, the question artificial intelligence and whether it's going to work out for us or not. And the guy was like, are you really sure you should be publishing that stuff? Because when the AIs are in charge, they're going to read what you wrote and come <laughs> after you. And then he told me, and this was the really stupid part. He said, I've been avoiding, I, whenever there's a conversation or something online about AI, I always refrain from sharing what I think so they won't know. And I'm like, if you think AIs are going to be so smart, aren't they going to be able to use statistical analysis to see what you've been selectively avoiding and infer yeah. how you feel about them? You've kind of and, got more things to worry about at that point than yeah. whether, whether like, you've said something online. <laughs> and his jaw drops like, oh, shit. Oh, oh man, I didn't think of that. Right? Or these guys who are really hadn't considered how do you maintain control of your security staff in your bunker after your money's worthless? It's like they haven't read Machiavelli 101, you know, and they expect to be, you know, dictators of their little of their little worlds. But can I ask you a question, Douglas? Because you know, I'm from Eastern Europe and I was brought up in the system that somebody dreamt up around the coffee table and then had the whereabouts to actually force it on, you know, millions of people for, for quite a number of decades. Mm. So uh, in some way, when I read your book, which I loved it, uh, I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's good that they're idiots. Maybe it's good that they are trying to separate themselves and dig bunkers in New Zealand rather than try to put us into bunkers and make us work for them in any more advanced way. So, you know, maybe somehow the escapism, it's a healthier thing for their egos and their masculinity to express itself. Because if they were Lenins, they would be after us already. And in some way right. they are because they're you know, taking every piece of data they can extract. But it's rather that than having you know, communist tanks on the lawn as my mother, my grandmother, and my grandmother had. So, so yeah. it's a challenge. Should, should we just you know, encourage them? The more isolating trend they take, the better for everybody else. You would think, I mean, we can't for two reasons. One, because their belief that they are going to be able to insulate themselves from the damage they're creating um, uh, encourages them to do more damage with impunity. You know, so the executive at the Epson printer company who decides that he's going to brick every printer after 5,000 pages in order to force everyone to buy a new printer, he's making the calculation that he's going to make enough money in that uh, planned obsolescence to escape from the damage he's creating by throwing more printers into the landfill. So there's that. And the second part is that they're zero to one meta uh, uh, understanding of the world ends up conveniently dovetailing with the worst of fascism. You know, so there's a, 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 a willingness among the tech bro philosophers to do our sense making for us, you know, to sort of do a form of disaster capitalism on the civilizational confusion and say, oh, yes, things are unstable, but 
Come with us. We can make some meta-modern metaphors for you that will hold, you know, your psyche and your consciousness and, and help you uh, orient and calibrate to this new place. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of an accelerationist fever dream that they don't realize that they're, they're pulling the language of Ebola and Bannon. And, you know, and we see in the, even the, the, the woman who was just crowned, you know, princess of the, the Italian parliament, I hear her speech where she's talking about humans and human autonomy, and I am not a consumer and I am not a number. It's as if she's quoting from my last book, Team Human. Right, because there's that when you try to to uh, um, uh, re reacquaint yourself with nature and the self and humanity and human autonomy, if you do it um, in that uh, abstracted meta way where we're reaching for that goal endpoint fascist thing the way all of the tech bros do, um, you end up fueling um, you end up fueling Steve Bannon, not. Uh, and and so you end up um, in the same place. Yeah, it's a difficult place because you you mentioned um, your dislike for virtual reality, uh, but we also aware that the future of the mankind has to be a little bit more limited and restricted because we just can't keep giving everybody a car and everybody as many goods as we had in the Western countries because the earth is going to collapse. So what's your take on, on VR? Because although it could be ready player go, but it could be also a way of creating spaces which we can exercise our creativity and freedom, but to limited impact on the earth. Spending money in virtuality, hopefully will be less damaging than spending money outside of it. So far, it feels more damaging in terms of environmentalism, in terms of the rare earth metals we have to dig up and the infrastructure we have to create, and then all of the Web3 blockchains we've got to, you know, burn. So we're, we're, most of them, it still feels like uh, a very rapid conversion of atoms to bits, you know, and <laughs> more of the world getting getting consumed in it. And, and I also, I, I'm not... I don't feel encouraged by any invitation to seed the physical reality for the virtual one. But where, where, what I would say, and this is again back to fiction, is yes, every American got to have their own car and now everyone else is gonna want them. But you know, it took a lot of convincing to make Americans even want a car. You used to go to work, you'd operate heavy machinery all day, and then when you're done operating heavy machinery, you would have a beer, get a newspaper, get on a streetcar, and it would take you home with your friends. Then somehow we had to convince people that, no, no, after a day of operating heavy machinery, what we want you to do is go sit in another piece of heavy machinery and pay for it and operate that and worry about running people over and then rebuild your entire urban and suburban infrastructure around the needs of this private vehicle. Your beer, your newspaper, your friends are gone. Your in this chariot now fighting for your life spending at least one day a week in america we we work to support the vehicle how is that better 
right? So I, I, I don't think it's a matter of um, allowing the rest of the world to have all the crap and nuclear family nightmare that Americans have gotten to experience from the 40s to the 80s until the decline of our civilization, but to, uh, to, to assist them in imagining way better pro-social alternatives to the mistakes we made. Is there not a part of the uh, the interest in VR? It's funny that we, we always find ourselves talking about Ready Player One when we're talking about VR. Um, yeah. And whether you watch the film or read the book, certainly in the book, you get the setup, the opening piece, which is how that infrastructure got there in the first place. It's like, why do all these sort of mm. areas of the edges of, of cities actually have kids with that kind of VR kit? And it's it was there to be their schools. It was there to get them in and give them the education, which they do discuss that setup. I mean, skip that in the book, but... There's a part of that piece and there's a part of what we came through with COVID where we did suddenly find ourselves now willing to get into Zoom, even though it was a, an office tool, to be social. And maybe that is the, the door with which VR gets itself in. Again, it gives us that the promise that the early web did. Connection, international connection, social connection. Is it survivable, that, the social connection online without the real human touchiness at scale? Zoom was a terrific tool for a world in the midst of a global pandemic. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? That's a good point, yeah. Which is why, you know, the prisoner's dilemma is a great way of gamifying people in jail, right? Again, you know, so the, the premises bother me, you know, so, so no, I mean, uh, uh, the COVID pandemic was the really the main reason I wrote the book I wrote, because I could start to feel like you're saying, I could start feeling the billionaire survivalist mindset trickling down to me, that I'm finally in a situation where I understand how they feel about other people. Now that other people carry COVID, that's how these billionaires have been feeling about all of us all along, you know, that we are the, the infectious little masses who are going to, you know, squirm around and mess up their little, you know, uh, uh, machine universe bunker fantasies. You know, they do. I get it. They want to go in Westworld. They want to go into the whatever they call that space where you migrate up into that you know mark zuckerberg and I, I i understand you know he um in the real world this the the what he wants to emulate is augustus caesar right which is means living at a remove right i mean we should be thankful it's not caligula right it's augustus is a notch better right as it's good but it's still a Ro holy roman dictator right it's an emperor right and that's his hair and all that and then technologically when facebook stops working it's getting sticky people are mad the politicians are angry the subscriber base is peaking he wants to go web 2 or web 3 or web 4 you know so he's going to go literally go meta on this thing and for him meta means running around with nothing below the waist right there's no uh it's not grounded it's not sexual it's not intimate it's this floating free floating thing you know and if he wants to go gigazint you know as grandma would say you know go go in good health but but don't bring me or my kids there i want to be on the ground my feet on the ground with the soil you know they're they're living out the francis bacon fantasy that 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 science and technology will let us take nature by the forelock hold her down and submit her to our will or as even you know our friend terence mckenna would say rise from the chrysalis of matter into pure consciousness right Ugh, ugh, you know, no, when I die, maybe, but not, not now. 
Well, it's a shame you can we couldn't have you here in in the real world in real life. Mm. Right? This is nice to say, but more real events. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is virtual reality doing well for us, you know. But when it was funny, I was on this panel the other day, and they asked me, "Oh, what's the best example you've yet seen of augmented reality?" And I said, "You know, um, the best example I've seen is the um, the markings that hobos used to put on trains on train cars." You know, it was this layer or the things people used to paint onto houses in the Underground Railroad in the U.S. So you'd know what house is friendly, what house has a dog, who has a gun. So it was a layer on top of our world that gave people information. And it didn't require a headset or new glasses at all. Just the, just the guide to the book, if you like, the, the key to the map. Mm-hmm. Same as graffiti, I guess, to those that can, that can read it, the tagging yeah. and all that, all that kind of thing. It's adding a layer of information about a neighborhood that if you know how to read it you know how to right. read it yeah and it's not not corporate monopolized it's uh uh it's an not open yet. api not yet yeah. not yet <laughs> they'll get they'll get there um i when you were when you were talking there, i was thinking about in terms of what you've done with your book there in terms of bringing the the sort of human stories through and i i feel that the stories we've got in this book are very so there's a lot of tech and all that sort of stuff, but I think predominantly, if not all of them, have that humanity thing. It's like when when humans and tech meet, what could it what could it look like? And I think that that feels like possibly the difference about uh, the sort of speculative near future, as opposed to some of that space opera. The, the sort of hard tech sci-fi that's all about the tech, that's all about, like, what does a spaceship look like well, and all that kind of thing. The, this near-future stuff seems to be much more about, much more grounded in, in, a, in the life of the humans that will experience it. In, in a way, that's why we had quite few women authors in the contribution, uh, because at the moment we don't get to run social platforms yet it would be very different if we did but in the meantime women are very subjected to surveillance in many ways that men are not so it was just trying to pick it up you know the story Mm. of a carer that Britta wrote about uh, her having to put a surveillance bracelet on her crazy grandma and the grandma running away and doing crazy parties. And the recognition between is, I'm a carer, I need to know where she is. But is it really the right technology to bring for the future caring? Like, how are we going to even resolve that? And I'm, I'm interested to see if, what's, your, what's your view of, uh, you know, if the tech bros were female, would that be any different? Is there hope for the post-male society? The opportunity... You know, if we want to use the, the male, female in, in a kind of a broad stroke, I mean, the opportunity is for a non-climactic, non-catastrophic uh, uh, tech development pathways. What would it be like to develop a technology without an exit strategy? That's you know, where yeah. it's leading towards a, a sustainable a sustainable outcome. You know, what if you move from the finite game of the sort of male orgasm to the infinite game of the female orgasm? And that was applied to all the narrative, our technological and business narratives. You know, you would break capitalism and you'd break, um, you'd break, um, tech brohood. You know, the other interesting thing is I think you could reverse figure and ground in, in a profound way. You know, when you're talking about the stories in this book and I'm thinking about little stories and, and kind of science fiction anthologies 
There's a, no, it's beautiful stuff, but you think about like Black Mirror, you know, and all those little stories that he's doing each week is another story or two. And they're stories that still end up one way or another, uh, centering the technology rather than the human you know in each one of these it's a technology that kind of has gotten out of control in one way or another and then leads to this huge unintended consequence so it's that same thing it's going to keep happening um and these stories are different in that the that they really do take the perspective of the human being you know in in the technological environment so there's still a sense of autonomy that that goes through these stories where where i feel like so much of the at least the stereotypically white male heterodoxy tech bro model is about uh, uh, controlling the unexpected controlling the human making the humans more predictable getting out of danger i don't feel safe i don't feel safe i don't feel safe you know that's really what what they're saying with all of their actions where um i feel like Women, having lived through two or three thousand years of never being safe, have learned that that safety is is more than elusive. It's unattainable, right? True safety. The only safety you get is through tr interhuman trust. So you know the the. I think we would we would be looking at a tech development pathway that is about engendering trust between people rather than substituting for trust with technology. And that would be a, you know, a fundamentally different approach. That's a nice one. Uh, there's, there's another piece that you mentioned in the introduction. I'd love the opportunity to just challenge you on or ask you about more. And that's, um, you mentioned the, the short story because it literally doesn't have time to go through the whole arc and the, what's going to happen. What's going to, you, you, it is a tableau you're in, you've got three pages and you're out. And, the resilience, I think is the word you use, the resilience that that gives to the reader that, you know, situations can happen and they're messy. They don't start out and build and grow and have resolution. So you just get a quick slice through. I wonder if you could take like just 30 seconds to sort of fill that out again, because it feels like it gives you resilience as a reader to see that the real world is halfway through the story. The real world is the middle of a story, not something with a nice beginning, middle and a climax and an end. Right. I mean, can you tolerate it is really the question. Can you tolerate it? It's back to the Tantra, right? Can you tolerate it? Right? No, no finish, no finish, no finish for you. Um, just be there, be here now. It keeps going. It's a never ending story. I mean, I know people that were intolerant of fantasy role playing games. It's like, what do I mean? We come back next week and keep going. It's not done. Yeah, we're going to do this for five years, buddy. We're doing this until we go to college. This is like it, right? It's going to keep great. going. And the people are so, um, they're intolerant of that. It's interesting. It's like the only one way we've been able to do it so far is like these kind of Game of Thrones epic things. At least you get a dragon blowing up a zillion people. You know, you get something to to get you through the night, right? You get both, you know, and then and, and a cliffhanger to get to the next one. But um, no, we're not we're not tolerant of that, which is why I feel like now we're living in a world where people would rather the world end in a fiery apocalypse than just keep on going in the uncertain way. At least we'll get to the end. You know, who's the sinner? Who's the damned? Who's the winner? Who's who was right? Is it left? Is it right? Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it come on? You know, it's like I paid my admission, so I want the thing. <laughs> that that I, I agree. That that sort of notion of living in messiness, uh, randomness being a, a kind of good thing in your life, and all that is if. 
feels as if that's kind of being washed washed away partly through you know I get, I get the whole sort of apps to meet people and all the rest of it but there's a kind of I'm I'm being um uh I'm being defined which you know I know we're all easy to define in some ways so I that's that would be my con, that's one of my concerns is that where's the randomness where's the messiness and and we have a media that doesn't really play well to that because they want to be able to do the black and white stuff and yeah it is and it's it's a fascist drive ultimately it ends up becoming a fascist drive because you're either you know like the sense making crowd you're looking for the ultimate metaphor that will finally explain what's going on here you know what's a metaphor right but to define it or if you're in the programmatic mentality you're looking for the 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 ultimate sequence of algorithms that will incentivize the ideal civilization how do we incent how do we build that oh at this and then you get this many users and that many likes and it goes around to this and that will engender the good behavior so it's always as if there's an an answer rather than no there's no answer there's the only closest thing we have to an answer is just be nice be as nice as possible um, to other people and living things and stuff as we all struggle through this bizarre uh, messy messy reality together which is a brilliant place to end. Yeah, I, I think we have to wrap up, but we just wanted to say hello to you from Richard Baybrook, oh. who you mentioned in the book as uh, author of Californian Ideology, which <laughs> had some influence on the mindset thinking. Oh, yeah. So he's waving and he's loving the book. So hopefully we can catch up again in a few months' time. But good luck with the book and thank you so much for supporting for this project. We enjoyed oh, every minute you. of it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for everything you do. It's an honor to be associated with, with all of this work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks. And that's about where we ended it. That was an event done on Thursday, the 29th of September, with Stephen Oran, Eva Pasco, and Benjamin Greenaway celebrating the publication of their book through Cyber Salon called 22 Ideas About the Future. It's a real nice little book collection of super short stories. Each one kind of pops an idea in your head and really doesn't finish, which is kind of part of the fun of it. If you can get used to that kind of open-ended fiction. Uh, these are my friends from really from the early days. One of my very, very first readings, certainly the first reading I did in the UK was from my book, Siberia, 1995. It came out there. And Eva Pasco had opened a a cyber cafe called Siberia. So I did my launch of Siberia in London at the uh, at the Siberia Cafe with uh, Eva Pasco. So it's really a, a pleasure to uh, uh, hopefully uh, uh, show her a solid by uh, promoting this great book that she uh, that she published with Cyber Salon. Take care, and I'll see you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 